Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Rootless Living Podcast and episode number five. I'm your host, Damien Ross, and in this episode, I chat with Jack Huber. Now, Jack was one of the digital nomads that sent in information about his favorite boondocking spot for issue number one of the Rootless Living magazine, and I quickly found out that he has a real interesting story about his journey to becoming a digital nomad. Let's jump into this episode. All right, you guys, I want to welcome Jack Huber to the show. Jack, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thanks so much for uh, connecting with us. And I'm really excited to, to have you on. I think you have an interesting kind of thing going on. I mean, I, I think we're all kind of interesting that we live this kind of lifestyle. But I was excited when uh, Nikki said, hey, I've got this guy and this is what he does. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> so let's definitely get him on the show. But before we get into all that, let me ask you the tough question. Where are you right now? I'm in Wachula, Florida uh, at a Thousand Trails Park, uh, Peace River RV Park. Um, it's about an hour um, southeast of Tampa, so kind of in the middle of the, of the mainland Florida. Gotcha. And what is it that you're, uh, you're living and traveling in? We're in a 32-foot uh, fifth wheel. It's a uh, Crossroads Cruiser. And I've got a uh, F-350 pickup I tow it with. Nice. Is that a, I'm not a big Ford guy. Is that gas or is that diesel? It's a diesel. It's a one ton diesel. Okay. We can can keep the podcast going. If it was gas, we'd have to hang up. We'd have to end it, but (laughs) we can still be friends. No, I'm kidding. I I do find it funny that that is like a trigger word for so many people, whether it's gas or diesel. So, you know, we, we had a, uh, a gasoline 250 to start with and eventually it just wouldn't um, work. So we had to trade it in on on the diesel 350. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've discovered <laughs> the hard way why it's good to have a diesel to pull these things. Definitely. Good advice. And so let's, let's talk about when did, like how long have you been full-timing? And I mean, do you consider yourself a, a full-timer? I don't want to just assume that. And then We are full-time. We, we sold our house in April of last year. Um, so it's been a little more than 18 months. And uh, so we don't really have a, a sticks and bricks home base like a lot of people do. We literally live in our fifth wheel, and we've been doing that for quite a while now. That's amazing. And when so 18 months ago, um, let's talk about what your life looked like before you hit the road. What did you know? What did that life look like? Where were you? Where were you living? What kind of job did you have? And then we'll get into kind of the transition. Okay. Um, so the uh, my full-time job, I was a manager at uh, a service manager at a um, a janitorial supply uh, distributor in Denver, Colorado. So my uh, technicians would go out in the field and uh, repair, you know, uh, cleaning equipment, anywhere from a vacuum up to a Zamboni type uh, floor polisher and uh, everything in between. We, our customers were hospitals and schools and large businesses um, and hotels, a lot of hotels. Um, I did that for uh, about five years. And uh, when I got the job, I told them this is the last job I want to ever have. I want to retire from here. And actually that's what I did. So I retired in April of uh, 18 
and uh, we then sold our house. Now, we had plans uh, to go full-time in an RV for um, years before we actually did. So in uh, 2014, we bought the fifth wheel. It was three years old at the time, and, um, and the truck, and with plans to go full-time as soon as I could retire. Uh, so in the meantime, we were able to take the uh, fifth wheel out um, on weekends and you know long weekends, and we uh, joined a, a camping group in Denver area. Uh, so we had lots of friends who uh, we would go camping with, and we kind of uh, decided what works and what doesn't work, and uh, looking ahead at, at full time living. So that was uh, definitely a benefit to us to have that time with the rig before we actually went out in it. Did you do RV camping at all prior to owning this fifth wheel? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, I had done, you know, tent camping uh, here and there, but uh, never in a, in a, not even a tent trailer. So we'd never had an RV. Gotcha. Hit a little fun side question. Do you consider what you're doing camping now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, most people would consider it glamping, which there is glamour camping, but um Camping is just an easy word to say. We're in a campground, so it's easier than trying to describe what we actually are doing. But, you know, we're basically uh, living from campground to campground. So we could call it camping, I suppose, if we, uh, I guess if we opened up the uh, fire ring and, and uh, started a campfire, it would be more official. I just feel like when I meet people that have done tent camping, because you're very much like me, I'd never, this is the first RV like I probably ever really stepped in besides being at an RV show looking for one. And my camping experience was with tenting. So when I hear camping, I have that reference that that's camping. You know what I mean? And so when people are like, oh, you're camping for a living. I'm like, no, I'm pulling a 40 foot condo behind my truck and <laughs> it's not but it's funny it's one of those kind of like another like the diesel was kind of a trigger this one's too the the camping I don't consider what I do camping I, I don't mind if someone else does per se but I just thought it was funny when you said you had done tent camping I also find it interesting that a lot of people in our lifestyle especially that are full-time they don't seem to have a lot of RV like history usually or at least in my experience when I'm talking to people it's really a lot of times their first RV is their full-time home and i don't know if that's just because of you know financially it's kind of hard to own an rv and a brick and sticks but it is an interesting phenomenon that i run into that when i talk to people that are doing it full-time that's their first rv i think that that's somewhat true although if it really depends on your um usual environment if, if you ended up going to state park campgrounds i think you might have a little different view of that because most of those people are not living full-time and they are weekenders primarily, and they're out with their uh, toy haulers and <laughs> taking out their four-wheelers and, and motorcycles and uh, really more family-oriented weekend-type campers. But in Thousand Trails or some of these other larger resorts, you're going to find way more full-timers than not. Right. No, no. I agree. And I agree too that I don't, I don't know what it is about you, Jack, but you're bringing out all the trigger things to me. I feel like <laughs> the weekenders are, there's a different mentality. And, and I mean, no disrespect to anyone that's actually a, like a thoughtful weekender, but those people are really on vacation. Like they're there and their mindset is like the campground's like a hotel in a way. Like it's there to, to serve them in a sense almost is kind of like 
what I noticed. Like anytime I've ever ran into any, I would say any kind of difficulties with a, a problem neighbor or trash or anything of that, it's a, it's a weekender. There's a big difference between people that this is their home and this is their vacation in the, the mentalities. And so I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but definitely when I'm at state it's, parks, you're right. It's interesting when you do go to these larger resorts, you really have three ty- types of uh, campers and that's you have the seasonals or full-time uh, residents, then you have full-time RVers like we are, and then you have the weekenders. And yep. so the seasonals, everyone to them is they're they're always vagabonds and and interlopers. They're they, they don't have much time for you because you're going to be gone next week. I kind of feel the same way about the weekenders. Uh, we're not going to expend a lot of energy on someone who's going to be here for two days or three days, and we're going to be here for three weeks. Right. So we're really seeking out people that are more in our lifestyle than the uh, the weekend warriors. So it sounds like you, even though it took you about four years from the purchase to hitting the road, that wasn't any kind of complacency. That was just waiting for the end date of retirement, which I, I feel like a lot of people, um, I haven't got like the numbers yet in my interviewing people, how long it takes, but I feel like that two year kind of spot is where I'm hearing from people. But yours is a little different because you were retired and then were able to hit the road, which is, it's really great, but you're still, I mean, just looking at kind of your bio and the things you have going on, you're still working a lot. Let's talk about, you know, what it is that you're doing on the road. And I mean, granted, probably the income comes from the retirement, but then there's also other things you're doing. Let's get into those. Let's talk about what you're doing, I would say, professionally now. Well, I am an author, so I'm working currently on my eighth mystery novel. I'm also a blogger, so I write uh, blog articles and get paid for um, many of those from different uh, websites, travel websites mostly, and RV websites. And then my wife and I have a consulting business. She primarily consults with insurance agencies uh, around the country, and she also consults with uh, life insurance. So we have a, a kind of a broad Uh, base for income. And that's kind of important to us because, you know, if you're dependent on one single source of income and something happens to that source and you're out on the road, that can be an emergency situation. So we try to spread it out and not have, uh, not be so dependent on any one source of income. I love that. And so for me, you know, I got laid off in November of last year and it did put me in that tailspin because that was my one egg and my one basket kind of a situation. So if you get anything from this episode and we haven't even really gotten into it, take that to heart. Like that's amazing advice from someone that you would think retired. It's kind of like, nah, we're good. And then being able to say, no, we need to have it in different kind of forms coming in in case one dies off or one slows down. At least we have this other thing. Were you writing novels while you were still working or was this something that came out of, I mean, eight books. I mean, I've, I figured that you've been doing this for how long? <laughs> I think, well, I've, I've averaged uh, one book about every eight months. So yeah, I have been doing this a while. Gotcha. Um, my first book I think came out in 20, I'm going to say 2016 uh, something like that. So I was already on book six, I think, when we hit the road. And book six just happens to be the first one where the main character um, moved into an RV full time as a, a retired detective. So I sort of 
took the opportunity of going on the road to bring my character on the road with me. So since then, book seven is he's already been on the road, and now book eight, he's uh, uh, this one's going to take place, I think, in um, in Utah and Colorado. So he's got a motorhome. How cool! That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard someone being able to do that. Uh, was the character kind of loosely based on a, a lifestyle you'd like to have <laughs> in the sense, and then you're able to bring this character along with you, or is it just happened? It didn't, well, we had, I had the plan to eventually move him into an RV when we first started the series, um, but I kind of had to wait to see, you know, number one, was I any good at writing uh, these novels, and number two, was the character going to stick and and be popular so when uh, those two things panned out i went ahead and um i wrote the first five knowing that book six was going to be the one it just was interesting timing that it happened when i was going to go full-time if i had delayed my full-time it wouldn't have changed that book six was that way gotcha for you what's gauging success within the books i mean obviously I'm always a big believer. If one person buys, it's successful. But what has been your definition of for you to keep doing this besides it being obviously there's some real passion behind it to be on book eight? That's a lot more than... Well, as an independent uh, self-publisher, it's difficult um, financially. Uh, if I was dependent upon my uh, book income, I probably would have to stop writing and do something else, mm-hmm. even after um, seven books. But I, I do get a lot of really good feedback uh, from my readers, and that keeps me going and keeps me, me wanting to uh, continue producing for them. I have a lot of good reviews up on Amazon and, and other sources. And, uh, and again, if everything just stopped, I probably would continue writing because I'm, I'm a writer. That's just what I love to do. And writing has been something that's been going on for obviously the last couple of years, but was that part of your life before too? Were you, it was it just more hobby based or is it just something you kind of found in the last couple of years that you really enjoyed doing? I've been writing basically all my life. I did a lot of poetry earlier in my career. As a matter of fact, I published six uh, books of poetry uh, before I ever started writing a novel. And my wife actually got me to start my first novel. And uh, after talking to some uh, local Denver authors, I went ahead and uh, gave it a try and really enjoyed that. I had tried to write a novel a couple of times before, and they were they were just really bad. <laughs> and so I was discouraged and it took a lot of uh, coaxing for me to give it another try, but my writing improved and I found a couple of different ways of plot generation and character development that I hadn't done before. And again, talking to other writers in the area helped a lot, but I've been writing uh, business articles, technical articles throughout my entire career. Uh, I spent over 30 years in IT and I did a lot of uh, technical writing for that. And then I've owned my own businesses and did a lot of uh, marketing pieces. So I've just always been in and around the writing community for a lot of different uh, methods and ended up when I was able to start devoting time to uh, my novels. I was working full time and um, working 50 hours a week. So I mostly uh, wrote on my lunch times and uh, evenings. 
And that's one of the reasons why it, it took a while to get some of these books written. I noticed that like, let's, we'll use an example, like in an RV channel, when an RV channel switches from, let's say like RVing to now we're going to, you know, full-time in a boat, it's hard to bring people along with you. When you, <laughs> when you went from a detective, obviously working in a city to now he's in an RV, how was that transition for people? I mean, it's a great way to expose people to this lifestyle for sure through a character. I love that. But how was that? Did you notice any kind of drop off that you might notice in like a, like a YouTube channel that's switching uh, kind of the background that much or not much at all? Yeah, I think I, I know who you're talking about there and they seem to have survived their, <laughs> their own uh, switch over okay. But I think that rather than a drop off, um, I experienced a uh, more interest because more, RV, more people in the RV community became interested in my work. You know, a detective is a detective. So if there's a murder, it doesn't really matter if it's in the city or in the country. He's still doing detective work or a private investigation. And it just so happens he's not going home to, uh, to a house. He's going back to his RV uh, at the end of the day. So I think it was really uh, an enhancement to my reader base rather than the other way around. No, I can see that because you're definitely bringing in kind of your own really unique experiences and passion too. So that's going to make for just a better character outline anyway. So that's really, that's really cool. What's the advice for people that are, that are stuck, uh, that they're still, you know, on their lunch breaks, writing, they've been writing forever. They are, they're not publishing. What's your advice to get that first book out? Because I think we've all learned no matter what kind of content you're creating, your first one's going to suck. Let's just get over that and get it out there. But done is better than perfect, you know? And I think for a lot of us, we, no matter where you are in your life, age, or even experience for some reason, doing the first one is the hardest kind of hurdle. And what's your kind of advice for getting past that and getting through that? Well, I would say that probably the most valuable thing you can do is join some sort of writer's community that whether it's online or local uh, to where you live, because I've found that most writers, and I have written to famous authors and been really surprised how many times they will write back and give me their their uh, thoughts and, and advice. I think that joining a community will give, a, give you a support system that you might not otherwise have and give you some expertise to fall back on to know, for example, when you should stop writing and, and when you should hire a, a publicist or not, things like that um, might give you a, a hand in the self-publishing process, which is not entirely simple for a novice. But th those kinds of things are out there for a new writer to take advantage of. That Just that support system is just invaluable. I do like that you talk about writing you know, someone that you're looking up to and them responding. I think most of us feel that if I reach out to this person, they're probably being reached out to millions of times and never going to get back to us. And so most people are thinking that way and they don't reach out to them. So there aren't sometimes a lot of people reaching out, especially where it's not a, like a, a me attitude of, you know, hey, help me promote my book. It's more help me get a better understanding of how to do this right. So that's, that's great advice. I mean, I actually am glad you said that. Now, the other thing I see just looking through your bio and your lifestyle is obviously you've got this writing background, but from what I can tell, you've got some photography skills too, and that seems to be 
a pretty cool passion project as well. Tell me a little bit about the, the photography game that you're in. So that, again, that's something I've been doing all my life. I, I like to tell the story about uh, that my first photos were taken by a brownie camera that my grandmother gave me when I was 10 years old. Back then, of course, you had film, you had <laughs> development. You know, I didn't have a job. I was 10 years old, so I uh, didn't have allowance. So I had to come up with some creative ways of funding my my hobby. Uh, but I found even way back then that I had a pretty good eye. All my life, I just have always been a photographer. Not, I don't consider myself a professional, even though I have some pretty good equipment. I have probably 30,000 photographs in my library. Wow. Um, but it does, uh, going full time, does get me around the country. So that's been one of the more exciting uh, aspects of the lifestyle is we're here in Florida. I have, this is the first time I've ever spent any considerable time here. And so now I'm going to be getting a lot of uh, pretty cool photographs here. Are you still shooting? I mean, I'm assuming you're doing digital now, but are you still shooting on film from time to time still too? Uh, no, no, okay. it's been it's been completely digital for a while. Um Back, oh, must have been 15 years ago now, I got a, a little Canon digital camera that was 300 pixels per inch. So that's 0.3 megapixels. <laughs> and, and Wait, is was, that the one that had the floppy disk in it still? Yes. Or, yes, 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 okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I had a bunch of floppy disks, <laughs> and uh, they, they were pretty low res com compared to now. But I've just sort of over the years tried to stay as current as possible. And then about five years ago, I got to what I'm currently using, uh, Sony Alpha Series cameras. I got, and I got two of them so that I wouldn't have to switch lenses between my telephoto and my uh, normal wide-angle lens. You can find me out with a harness and carrying two cameras all the time when I'm out in the field. Well, aren't you a tourist? No, I'm just kidding. Like, that's awesome. No, that's really, really cool. I do feel that way. Uh, my my telephoto is a 500 to 750 millimeter. So oh, wow. it's it's big. Yeah, and, it is. And, and I feel like I, I am a tourist, and some, especially when I go into a, a city and I'm walking up and down the street uh, taking pictures of the, you know, the architecture and the, <laughs> right. the openings and things like that that people don't care anything about. And where are you sharing uh, a lot of these photos? Where are you? Where are people seeing these? So I've been uploading most of my work to my website, jackhuber.com. There's a uh, a few galleries up there. Uh, I think I have somewhere around eighteen thousand pictures up there now. I've put thirty photos from thirty states up there by state. And then I still have my outside of the U.S. photos to, uh, to upload. So I've been to a few foreign countries and I still have that work to go up. But, but mostly you can find them on my website in uh, slideshows. Nice. Is this, are these raw images or do you spend time editing them before you're putting them up as well too? A little of both, just depending on how long ago it was. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the the new editing software going back to my pictures that are 10 years old gotcha um, so some of them are just the original photos that i shot and some of them 
I've uh, touched up to take spots out, you know, things like that out of them before I've uploaded them. So besides traveling full time, besides being an accomplished author and besides uh, taking <laughs> photos galore, is there something else that I'm missing that I just didn't pick up on that you're, uh, you're doing while out on the road? Uh, no, uh, again, I, I spend quite a bit of time writing. So, and then of course the, we spend quite a bit of time uh, with the RV itself. So like today we're in day two of repainting all of our decal stripes on the outside of the RV. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so that's time consuming. Uh, we've completely remodeled the inside of our RV. Most people don't realize that, and, and I'm sure you do realize it, that RVs are not really built for full-time use. Uh, they're really built for the weekends. And so when you're on the road, uh, like we have been, there are always things going wrong. I've had to replace my suspension. I've had to replace my front landing gear. I've replaced my floor, <laughs> the, the flooring, the, the floor covering and uh, carpets. And uh, just, I don't think there's any part of this RV that we haven't um, worked on or redone. Again, that's pretty time consuming as well. Without a doubt. I think if if more people that are in brick and sticks complained about the projects and the things they have to work on, it would terrify people to own a brick and sticks the way that full-time RVers do. When I purchased my fifth wheel, I was in one of the manufacturers kind of Facebook groups and right after I purchased, I was like, wait, what did I do? You know, because that's all anybody <laughs> wants to talk about is their complaints. But then I just started thinking, you know, I've had water heaters break down. I've had washer and dryers. I've had plumbing issues. I've had roofs that needed replaced. Like it's all part of it. And I'm from Los Angeles, California. So I'm from one of the earthquake capitals of the world. So I'm used to homes taking a lot of rattling kind of damage. You know, it, it's part of my... I'm from I'm from Southern California also, and nice. uh, we call what we do a rolling earthquake, actually. So. There it is. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally used to it, and I get it. Maybe in the beginning, I think we have an unfair kind of thought of what these rigs can handle, because you are right. I mean, that's one of the things. I've befriended someone that is starting an RV company or a fifth wheel company, and I've really talked to about the, the main thing for me would be the like the full-timer suspension, which you've already talked about, that it just requires different axles and leaf springs and disc brakes and better tires. Like there's a difference than driving it, you know, maybe 150 miles a year than there is of doing, we're two and a half years, about 50,000 miles. There's a big difference. And it'd be nice to have that package from the get go. I get that not everybody needs it, but to your point, replacing it all doesn't make sense when we could have just started with like a full-time kind of package underneath at least I think is like really important. But I think it's, it's good to hear from people that, yeah, these things do go wrong. And yeah, were you kind of a, a handy guy before in your own home? Because for me, I wasn't, and I've learned a lot while in this lifestyle. <laughs> I did, I did some work, but I wouldn't call myself a handyman by any right. means. Um, uh, I also called in people to help and and do projects in my house. Replacing the water heater is not something I would look forward to doing. Right. I will say that in my old home, if I put a ladder up, I didn't have anybody coming by trying to help. But if I pop a tire off this RV, I'll have five or six people walk by and <laughs> offer to help. And what do I need? What am I doing? You know, it's it's a great lifestyle for that, for sure. There is that. And then also one thing that's been a huge uh, advantage to RVers um uh, most recently is just the pure number of how-to videos on YouTube. Yep. Um, so anything I want to do, I'm looking at two, three, four videos before I attempt it. 
Yeah, and if you are listening to this and thinking about creating how-to videos, I'm gonna give you just a fun little tip. Get to the how-to as fast as you can. <laughs> like, I don't need to watch four minutes of you telling me about who you are and what you've done. Just show me how to replace the leaf spring, please. Let's get to it, I'll subscribe yes. later, that kind of a thing. Um, let, let's talk about family and friends a little um, because I feel like this comes up. And, and I get it's a little different because I felt like, you know, forever that this lifestyle was kind of a retired lifestyle. This was after we're retired and after we're done, we're doing it. Obviously, there's been a huge shift in that in the last five years. But I'm just wondering if you even ran into that as someone that was retiring and hitting the road from friends and family. Like, this is crazy. Nothing, you nothing negative. We have a family scattered from coast to coast. So between us, we have six kids, five grandkids, five great-grandkids. I have uh, six brothers and sisters, and it uh, seems like no two of them live in the same place. So right. um, one of the things that this allows us to do is see people that we normally would not see. Now, we had no family in Denver, and we, were, we lived there for six years. So if we wanted to see anybody, we were going to be flying to Boston or to Nashville or to Seattle. Now we just put those uh, spots in our itinerary and we just make sure we get there and we spend time with family that we might not have spent time with five, in the last five years. So it's actually been a huge advantage. So everyone's just pretty excited that, we, that we're doing this. Uh, friends, that's a, a little different thing because, again, we had a pretty good community of RVers that we were with for several years in Denver before we left. And we were the first ones in that group to leave and go full time. We do miss them, um, several of these couples, greatly. And that was probably the hardest thing about leaving town. Giving up the friendships, yeah, or at least yes. uh, to be able to see each other on a regular basis. Yeah, no, I totally. Correct. But it's their so, pl that group's plan for a lot of them is it to go full time at some point, so then you guys will start seeing each other on the road, or are they just that's gonna... starting to happen now. Gotcha. Uh, one of the couples we're going to be seeing um, in here in Florida in about a month uh, for uh, four or five days. They're finally out on the road. And they're older than we are, but they just, um, they didn't want to sell their house and go full time. They're just um, um, sort of doing the long term month at a time kind of camping. So they're visiting family and they're going to be kind of in the same area that we're going to be. And so we're getting together then. We've got a, another couple that's moving from Denver to Texas. And so we'll be adding Texas to our, we already were going to be visiting Texas this coming year, but we'll make it a more regular stop now, friends there. So, and the other thing is we plan on returning to Denver as often as we can, at least once a year. Uh, our doctors are there, our dentists are there, uh, our friends are there, and we just love the Denver area and, and that part of Colorado. So we have a lot of incentive to, to stop back by on an annual basis. If nothing else, we're going to see a lot of these people. That's great. And I did, if I picked up, you said you've done 32 states so far on the adventure. Is that yes. what I heard? Yes. Nice. Is the plan to do the lower 48 and then Alaska, Canada, or what do you guys kind of, do you guys plan that kind of stuff and think about that? Or is it more just, you know, let's talk I'm about a long-term, I'm a long-term planner. So, you know, I have next year, I think through October planned already. Wow. Um, part of that is because I want to make sure that, you know, we get our reservations as soon as we can get them because 
Um, that's been a problem in the past where uh, we wanted to go to Maine, for example, and uh, two of the three campgrounds that we wanted to, to stay at were already booked. And that's even with Thousand Trails. So it's just something that I, and I enjoy the, that's, that's one of the, the facets of travel that I really like is, is the planning stage anyway. We are going to be doing Alaska. We did Alaska cruise this last year. We liked it so much that we're going to take our RV up there uh, in 2021 We'll probably take two or three couples that are have expressed interest in joining us. Uh, so we'll have a mini caravan going up there. And that'll be uh, June and July of 2021. But this coming year, um, what I like to do is we'll sit back and we'll, we'll sort of bring up our bucket list of places and see if it makes sense in our travels to hit those things. So... Uh, we just came from the, the Keys. We were on Sunshine Key. I guess it's called Ohio Key and visited Key West. Um, that's always been on my bucket list to do is to spend some real time in the Florida Keys. So we just did that. We went to Maine, which was on my bucket list uh, and did the sunrise in Acadia National Park. Uh, which was awesome. We did uh, the Badlands, which we had visited before, but we did a we boondocked just overlooking the Badlands on a cliff for four days, and that was just amazing. So we have these things that we kind of wanted to do. Uh, this last year, we wanted to see the. Uh, I had seen it because I had spent time in the Pacific Northwest and had gone to and from LA from there uh, over the years. But my wife had never really seen the Oregon coast and Washington coast. So we spent four months going from San Diego to Canada along the uh, Pacific coast. So it's those kinds of things. We know uh, kind of the region that we want. And then we look at our bucket list and see if there's any specific things we want to hit while we're there. Gotcha. And and if I heard you correctly, you're still a Denver resident we are not we oh, are okay. south south dakota residents same here we, uh, I'm, I'm from los yeah, angeles south dakota not. is where i'm from <laughs> uh in sioux falls we have our mail delivery service there and of course south dakota is like the second lowest insurance rates in the country uh, for reasons like that i think when we registered our vehicles we were like one fourth of what we paid in colorado so there's a lot of financial reasons to uh, to reside in South Dakota, even though we haven't spent more than about uh, two weeks there total. <laughs> right. So yeah, I think I only did uh, three days in South Dakota, but I've been a resident for about two years, and it has been, especially coming from California, and what those costs are, and especially when I was oh, working yeah. for other people, just the income taxes, and especially if you ever get commissions. It's really, and when you're in these bigger cities, I feel like you're paying for a lot of services that you'll never use through your taxes. And then when you're out here, you know, I, I feel like we've brought in a lot of, I guess, just income to the, some of these smaller towns that probably just wouldn't see as much of an income because we like to go out and visit different places, little mom and pop shops and stuff like that. So it's it's a really cool lifestyle. And I'm, it was interesting to hear that you're from South Dakota as well. It's either South Dakota, Texas, possibly Florida. Now you're in Florida. I'm going to ask you a question. I've only been to Florida once and I actually never met anyone from Florida while I was there. I literally, <laughs> everyone, I, I met more Canadians than ever. And then I, everyone else is just basically a snowbird. And granted, I was there during kind of some of the winter months. How about you? Are you running into locals at all? Um, well, we have. Um, the reason we're able to do that, I think, is because of our village. So our village is an online community. 
and there's 170,000 members. When we check in to the campground on our village, everyone who's um, camping or living or staying around us shows up on a map. And then we have uh, get-togethers. So I, I plan a, a, like a little group lunch or dinner at a local establishment wherever we are. And I do that probably a couple times a month. And so sometimes we'll get the locals that are RVers, but they're weekenders, but they happen to live in the area that we're visiting, come out to these get-togethers. So that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the things that we do, because when you're in a campground, as you probably know, a lot of people really like to, to uh, stay to themselves and not really communicate with people around them. They, they don't sit out on their, unless they're just doing a campfire for their kids, they're not outside of their rigs very often. Right. And so uh, the Our Village um, get-togethers that we do really give us some community. You know, we have people that we meet for the first time and then we're friends for a long time. And sometimes we have people that are sort of, we sort of following the same camping path. So we'll see them in three or four or five campgrounds in a, in a six month period. So we're actually making friends that way. It's not just uh, people that we'll never see again. No, totally. I, the community sounds fantastic. And I did not know about that app feature that's kind of showing you people that are at the campground that are in the community as well, too. That is a really cool feature because I've seen other communities, whether it's a YouTube channel or other of these like um, groups, but it's normally like some sort of sticker kind of on the rig. And then you've got to go through the the knocking on the door. I, I do at the tr- thousand trails I'm at right, right now in South Carolina. I notice this gentleman will start conversations with people when they're leaving, like packing up and he just comes over and says, hi, how are you? How you doing? I thought that's really interesting. He's getting to know people, but just in case they're terrible people, they're on their way out. So he doesn't have to really invest a lot of time and energy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time I've seen this guy like come up. I've been here, you know, almost two weeks. He hasn't said a word to me, but I'm, I'm excited on Saturday when I leave, if he's going to come up and talk to me as I'm, as I'm taking off. Um, I think we have talked about a lot of the good and the bad, obviously, of this lifestyle. But what I like to get into is just like one specific really kind of good and one, you know, just go ahead and I'm just a big believer in keeping things real. And I think that if you ever try to put on a light that this RV lifestyle doesn't have kind of its downside to it, it does. And so I just like to get into a like a really cool moment and maybe something that's just gone kind of bad, if you don't mind talking about those two. Um, I think... The, there's been so many great moments, it's hard to choose one. Uh, we've boondocked in some really fantastic places. And when we were in the Badlands, just as one example, there was probably four RVs in a two-mile stretch. <laughs> so yeah. we weren't all by ourselves, but it was pretty remote for us. And there was no moon during the time we were there and you know there were so many stars in the sky that you couldn't even tell the constellations wow um and uh, you put your hand up in front of your face and you can't see it so you know it's it's a little bit different of course there's wildlife that drive you know walks by and it's pretty cool we did that in uh outside of um joshua tree national park uh, it was kind of the same thing where it's pretty remote. Those boondocking experiences, you just don't um, get very often unless you really make it happen. Yep. Um, the 
otherwise, we've mostly been in resorts, RV campgrounds. I can uh, tell you one, one story, uh, one quick story. We were in New York uh, State, uh, upstate New York, in uh, Brennan Beach, which is a, a thousand trail and encore park there. I had offered to do karaoke, uh, host karaoke, which I've done for a long time. So they said, sure. And I said, well, I'm not going to charge you for it. It just, for me, it's just, I just want to have fun with it. And, and uh, if you guys have a community of people that want to do it, then that'd be great. So they agreed and we set up to do it. So I arrived at the park and we're still on for karaoke. Oh yeah, we, we are, but you're going to follow uh, bingo. So we're going to do bingo first, and then we're going to let you set up um, while bingo's still running, and then we'll just, everyone will just stay from bingo, just stay for karaoke. I said, okay, well, that's good. We should have a good crowd then. Oh, yeah. So what they didn't tell me was the bingo was <laughs> booze bingo, oh, which no. means that in, in order to have a bingo card, you had to bring a bottle of booze and donate it. Um, so whiskey and tequila and beer and all sorts of things. And then they gathered all that um, alcohol into like laundry baskets. And that was the giveaways for the bingo. That was the bingo prizes for getting a bingo. And so they had all this booze. Everyone was mostly drunk by the time karaoke started. And some of the people, and it was mostly um, residents, uh, full-time or seasonal residents there. Uh, some of them had to be helped to the stage and helped back from the stage uh, after singing terribly. And it was uh, just not a fun night of karaoke for, for me. I'm sure uh, someone sitting watching was having a, a good time. <laughs> but, um, that terrible. So, so be careful what you wish for. Um, I guess the the worst time we had was probably when the uh, front landing gear wouldn't work. Hmm. So we're on our way out. We have to check out. It just, it wouldn't uh, raise. The the fifth wheel front wouldn't raise, so I couldn't hook up. Even if I could hook up, I couldn't go anywhere because the landing gear was down. Right. We had to really scramble to try to find somebody who could come, a re, uh, you know, a remote repair RV guy. It took a couple of hours. We didn't know what we were going to do. We had to leave. They couldn't stay another night there. So it was pretty hairy. And those are the kinds of things I think that keep me up at night, uh, wondering uh, if we're going to be in a, in a bad situation mechanically. Um, so we try to keep an eye on things pretty closely anymore. But that was a, a pretty hairy day. And it turned out we were able to find someone to come out and we ended up having to replace the entire, the entire front assembly, the landing gear assembly. And it was about $1,500. Hmm. And it seems like no matter what repair you make on the road, it's going to be $1,500. So right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just count on that. But That's very true. We had a, we, it's funny. We had a front landing gear situation where we were all hooked up to the truck and one leg went up and then the last leg just, everything shut down. It was actually our, like our breaker, like it finally blown out. So I had to manually bring it up, but it's just, this is one of the funny aspects. I was at, I think a KOA at the time, we're just in Santa Fe for like two nights. Of course, the person coming in is coming in early. That's coming into my spot, but there was like 15, 20 empty spots. And I, this is one of those things like with these campground owners, host managers, I'm just like, 
okay, I get it. You can't reserve it by spot. We didn't reserve by spot. We reserved the time to stay. These people don't know this is the spot we're going to be in. Go ahead and put them next to us. And then whoever's going to be in their spot, when we finally get this thing raised up and get out of here, it's the weirdest phenomenon. Like they just can't move things around, you know, like I know. for whatever reason. It makes yeah. me laugh all the time. Um, well, those are great stories. I appreciate you sharing them. And it is something I want to bring to the podcast because I think you will have as many problems as you will owning a home or renting a home or anything of that nature as you will on the road. And luckily that happened at a campground and not when you're out boondocking because I'm with you. I, those are the things I fear the most that could happen while out boondocking. And now how do I get a mobile repair guy out in the middle of nowhere, you know, kind of a thing. And, and by the way, if you're taking your, your rig in, in for repair, you're taking your home in for repair and yes. uh, you have to worry about, where you're going to stay if it takes, you know, more than a day to get it fixed. And, and I really, uh, I think motorhome uh, owners have it the worst because at least we can unhook um, our truck and go find a motel. But <laughs> if, if you have a, if you're in a motorhome and you don't have a toad, you're pretty much out of luck. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, it's just an interesting topic we can talk about for a second is that a lot of people ask me, you know, and I ask the wrong questions as a newbie, like, should I get a class A or should I get a, a fifth wheel or a bumper pull? And I think that was one of the reasons I went with a, a fifth wheel was the ability that if something went wrong with my engine, let's say, getting it towed to a dealership is a lot different than trying to find a place that can work on a class A. And to your point, when the engine work's being done, because most parks will let a mobile tech come in and work on things, but they're not going to let you rip your engine out and do like oil changes and things like that a lot of times. And so for me, that was once I learned that aspect of it, where I was like, Oh, that makes sense because <laughs> then I won't be out of a home. You know, I'm just taking my truck in and I can Uber back if I have to, but I do love that the community will, there are times where people have arguments about what's easier to set up. I, I don't know how you feel, but as kind of a seasoned guy now, if you're, if you have a toad on a class A and you've got to back into a spot and you have a fifth wheel and you have to back into a spot and get disconnected and get all set up, there really isn't a difference in timing. You know, like there's not one that's easier unless class A is somehow is hooking up to the sewer automatically and no one's told me yet. There's not like, there isn't really a difference in time. You know, everyone's different. I've seen class A's do it a lot faster than me and I've seen fifth wheels, you know, do it a lot faster than me. So it just, it's all personality thing. I don't know why people get caught up in what's easier there really isn't that's not a I guess I would just I would just add that um, when I set up I'm setting up uh, basically a front yard right so I've mm -hmm. got my uh, pen uh, my fence for the dogs and we've got uh, you know mats and the awnings and screens and I've got flickering lights solar lights and I'm doing all of that setup a lot of um, especially class A motorhomes don't do any of that. They yeah, they don't, they don't have the storage. Up, they, <laughs> yeah. You might not even see them put out the awning, right? It's right. Just, they just pull up and they're staying inside the rig. They could care less about what's outside. And uh, so for those people, they come and go, they're, they're quick in and out, yep. but you're, you're right. If you're going to set up all those things, it doesn't really matter what type of rig you have. You're still going to do all that setup. Yeah. And, Without, yeah, and when people talk about how a class A is so much easier to back up, I'm like, but you still have to disconnect your toad. From, I mean, most yeah. class A's I see are pulling a toad. You still have to disconnect it. So now you're in the middle of the road blocking people <laughs> while you get that disconnected. I'm not doing, you know, it's, there is like a give and take 
with everything for sure. I, I will say yeah. this though, if I was in the PNW, I saw a class A pull in, it was pouring rain and he went through a pull through and he got all set up and he never had to come outside. I mean, granted he hadn't set up water or electricity yet, but he was completely dry while setting up. You and I won't experience that. If it's pouring rain, <laughs> we're getting wet setting up. So there is some well, pluses. That, yes. And of course I've been in several campgrounds where uh, class A won't make a turn in, in the middle of the campground and you know I mean, the trees are too close or whatever and you know with a fifth wheel or a pull trailer um you know a jackknife's enough to to get a uh, maneuver in some of these campgrounds so no matter what there's there's always going to be something better uh, from here and there and you talk to a guy with a motorhome and he wishes he had a fifth wheel if you talk to a guy with a fifth wheel he might wish that he had a motorhome definitely always, the grass is always greener on the other side so Without a doubt. Well, well, Jack, I've really appreciated hanging out and talking to you. Where can people find you and be able to connect with you? And, you know, and obviously find the books and find the photography. I want to make sure everyone knows. And obviously everything you mentioned to me, I'm going to drop in links at the bottom of the show so people can find it there too. But go ahead and let people know how they can find you. So I have just about everything on my uh, website, uh, jackhuber.com. And of course I have a Facebook and I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm <laughs> on Instagram and all of those things too. But you can always start right at my website and I've got the, the uh, photography there. I've have uh, all my books, poetry books and the novels there. I've got my uh, poem of the week, uh, photo of the week. I've got uh, just a lot of things going on there, even the, a few podcasts. So, um, that's where I would start. That's awesome. And then just something that, because you're saying this, I want people to hear it. What Jack's doing is he's building his platform on land that he owns by directing people to his website. So just in case I have anyone on here that's really interested in being a content creator or an author, photographer, you know, all of the socials, that's rented property. At any time, they can change their mind. They can go away like a Vine or a MySpace or something like that. And but all of his kind of driving his traffic is to land that he owns. When you own your .com, that's yours. Nobody can take that away. When you own the email list, that's yours. Nobody can take it away from you at any time. So it's really smart. I just want to point that out for people because I think a lot of people put too much energy and weight into socials and things of that nature that they just don't realize that those, those platforms can decide to go away at any time. And now what? And so yep, it's, it's, you're right. You're yep. doing you're doing it the right way. Well, again, Jack, thanks so much for uh, hanging out with me, and um, I look forward to hopefully one day meeting you on the road. Yep, me too. Thanks. All right, another great podcast in the books. Please take a second and give this episode a review, as that is a huge help for me to be able to get the word out about it. And if you happen to know anyone that is either an inspiring digital nomad or is a digital nomad, please share it with them. Now, don't forget to head over to rootlessliving.com and grab a free digital copy of your Rootless Living magazine. And you know what? If you think you would make a good guest for this podcast or you know someone that would make a good guest for this podcast, have them reach out to us at podcast at rootlessliving.com. Again, that's podcast at rootlessliving.com. Until next week, stay rootless.